All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you're here this morning for uh, this uh, conversation. Let me just say a couple of introductory remarks, and then we'll dive in. Uh, My name is Jason Jackson. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown, and uh, just excited that you're here this morning. Uh, Our Sunday school class is kind of interesting in that, you know, a lot of churches, if you've been around church for a while, have Sunday school classes for adults that kind of meet all the time, and there's, you know, multiple sort of Sunday classes for adults. Uh, For us, with our limited space here at Palmer, we do this adult Sunday school class generally between 10 and 12 weeks every spring, 10 and 12 weeks every fall. And what we try to do is we try to specifically kind of pull people together to talk about uh, any either like pressing issues uh, as it relates to Bible or theology or ministry or even cultural and societal kinds of things that are happening, uh, to be able to give us an opportunity to have some longer or extended conversations, uh, oftentimes about harder or more difficult or controversial sort of topics that are difficult to tackle sometimes in a 25-minute sermon, uh, where we need just you know, a longer period of time to be able to discuss. Uh, we do have an email that we send out to people. Um, so on the back table on your way out, uh, we send an email every week uh, that allows you kind of know what's going on in Sunday school. And then we usually send the PowerPoint slides and those things too when we have them via that direction. So if you're trying to copy everything down on the slides, it may be easier for you just to grab and write your name down on the email list and we'll get them sent off to you. We also podcast these. Um, so if you're like, oh, I want to go back and listen to that, we have two podcasts for New Life Downtown, one for the Sunday morning services and one for Sunday school. So you actually have to uh, search for New Life Downtown Sunday School in order to find the podcast for this one. We do have some of the team here today that helps put uh, the Sunday school class together. Brian and Britt Kwan are here. This is Brian, that's Britt. Um, Brian's helping with some of the tech stuff today. Jacob Domeyer is the other one, but Jacob is not here this morning, but we're grateful for their help kind of in putting all of this together. Uh, and today we're actually starting, we're kicking off a three-week series on the topic of women in ministry. Uh, so this really kind of came to the surface uh, last fall in the midst of all of our conversations about singleness, uh, where there was a number of questions that came up during those conversations related to this particular topic. And so we wanted to be able to circle back around uh, to spend some specific time talking about women in ministry. Today, what we're going to specifically do is focus on the relevant biblical passages. Uh, So we're going to look at those texts. So there'll be a lot of texts on the screen uh, that we're going to be working through. Uh, Know that we're going to be focused solely on the New Testament text rather than the Old Testament text, just for the sake of time. And we're going to focus specifically on the texts that are related to women in ministry rather than women and the roles in marriage and family. Um, So we're going to be kind of limiting the scope of of the discussion to those. Then there might be questions that come up in the middle of it that you have, and that's that's fine. Let me say from the start that I recognize that this is a very controversial and polarizing topic. Um, This is not generally a topic of conversation that people don't have an opinion about. Uh, usually we have uh, some opinion, some perspective that we're bringing in. And in fact, uh, we have, really this is one of the issues that's pretty polarizing within the history of the church or in different denominations. So on one end, we have whole traditions uh, that say women are forbidden from leadership roles inside the context of the church. 
On the other end of the spectrum, we have those that say that the Spirit can gift and use whoever he wants, and gender doesn't have any bearing on leadership in the church. And then in between, we have a lot of folks who are just really confused. Uh, Oftentimes, though, in the midst of those conversations, we not only have confusion, but oftentimes we have hurt and we have anger uh, and we have things that have happened to us or been said to us or ways in which things were uh, handled in ways that ended up being more harmful than helpful. And so there's all of this kind of stuff that we uh, bring into the room and we're going to try to have the conversation as best we can with knowing that there's all of those kind of emotions that are coming in. On full disclosure, just though that we start so that you know where we're going to land, uh, I figured it would be best just to say where I'm at personally from the start. <laughs> so, so you're not sitting there going, well, what does this guy actually think uh, through the whole time? Personally, I believe uh, that women can be called, gifted, and equipped to teach, preach, and lead at any level in the local church. Um, so that's my position where I'm coming from, uh, that I believe that women can teach, preach, and lead at any level in ministry and leadership in the local church. Now, I will say that my view has certainly been influenced by my experiences in the church. So I became a follower of Jesus kind of in high school, and my first pastor, my youth pastor, was a woman uh, named Tammy Perry. She was fantastic, uh, was really a person who invested a whole lot in my life. And so the first person that I referred to as pastor in my life was a woman. Uh, So I didn't even realize kind of coming into the church uh, that this was an issue, that this was a debate, that this was a topic at hand. Uh, All of the churches that I have worked at in the history of my time in ministry, I've been in ministry for about 20 years, all of the churches that I've worked at have ordained women. Uh, So I've always been a part of those traditions. Uh, The first, my first youth pastor job, uh, my immediate supervisor, my boss when I was a youth pastor was a woman whose name was Susan Seeley. Uh, Susan was a fantastic sort of boss and supervisor. When I went to seminary to do my seminary work, I have a master's in biblical studies and a master's in theological studies. The seminary that I went to is Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, which is a seminary that very publicly champions women in ministry at all roles and all levels. And some of my best professors in seminary were women. Uh, So Sandy Richter, Christine Pohl, uh, some of these women were highly, highly, highly influential uh, in my life and my development. Uh, I would also say that my experiences are influenced by my family. Uh, I have a wife, Sarah, who's here with us this morning, uh, who has a seminary degree and is called to ministry. Sarah is not ordained yet, but I would imagine that's going to happen at some point in uh, our time together. And I have three daughters, uh, and I want them uh, to feel the freedom to uh, fulfill the call of God upon their life and use whatever gifts that the Spirit gives them. Uh, for the sake of the advancement of his kingdom. So I recognize that I'm bringing those things in um, to the conversation. At the same time, I also deeply, deeply, deeply believe that my view aligns with the scriptures. Um, That when we take a serious and difficult and hard look at the biblical text, that I think that's actually what's going on in the New Testament. Now, the texts that we're going to be talking about today are difficult texts. Um, There are some things inside of them that are hard to kind of parse out and hard to understand. And I do recognize that there is room for disagreement, Uh, that there are people who deeply love God, are deeply committed to the text, who read these things in a different way than I do. 
uh, I recognize that. But I do want to say, kind of from the start, both where I stand and where New Life Church stands. Um, So part of uh, the reason I'm teaching this particular week is both my background in biblical sort of studies, as well as wanting to say, as a representative of New Life Downtown, that this is also where we stand as a church. So you'll see that... um, if you look through New Life's website that we ordain women, that we have women uh, serving at all levels of the organization uh, in terms of our staffing, um, that we will have uh, actually in next week. Uh, Amber Ayers will be preaching for us on Sunday morning. So we will have uh, women leading worship, women preaching, women teaching Sunday school, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and we don't want you to be surprised by that if you're new to New Life Church and going, oh wait, I didn't expect this, uh, that this is kind of where we're coming from. So I wanted to say that right from the start, uh, and then I want to pray, and then we'll dive in. Does that sound good? All right, gracious Father, thank you for the chance that we have to be together, to be with you, to take a look at your texts. And we ask today that you would continue to shape us and form us into your image and likeness. And help us to know not only what it means to be formed individually, but help us to know what it means to be formed collectively, communally, to be the kind of church, the kind of people who in our life together reflect the very intentions and hopes and dreams of the gospel. Uh, And help us to debate and struggle and wrestle well uh, in places where we may have differences of opinion or differences of interpretation or difference of perspective. Help us to do that in a way that is um, glorifying and honoring to you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, as we dive in, here's a couple things I want us to keep in mind, if I can get my computer to work. We ha- okay, we have a question already. Go for it. Yeah, and so I'm specifically talking about that, but I would say anywhere else as well. But I- I'm specifically going to be focusing on the local church. Um, so I, I personally don't have an issue with women in leadership at any, any level anywhere in society. Um, so, but I'm specifically talking about the local church kind of in that, in that context. All right, here we go. All right, so here's a couple of things that I like to keep in mind when approaching some difficult texts, particularly texts that are related to things uh, such as the topic that we're talking about today. Uh, today. First of all, when approaching these kinds of texts, I think we have to acknowledge and accept the patriarchal cultural context. We can't pretend that the scriptures aren't being written to people who live inside of a patriarchal context. Uh, As much as maybe times that we want to do something else with the culture, we can't simply ignore the fact that that is the cultural milieu in which the writers of the scripture are writing into. That there is a patriarchal sort of context that is dominant across the ancient Near East. Um, So that is there in the text. It is the cultural sort of background. And I think we have to be careful, though, in that recognizing that we don't canonize culture, right? That there are certain things about all kinds of places and times where people have things that are related to their culture that we don't necessarily say, well, this cultural thing should be bearing upon everybody everywhere at all times. We have to recognize culture and accept and kind of deal with it um, without canonizing it or without like getting angry about it in the sense like, oh, I just wish it wasn't that way. Like 
that might be fine, but we can't sort of like argue it away in some sense. It's there. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. Second, when we're dealing with things that are related to that, those kind of topics, I think we have to pay close attention to what's culturally new or culturally different. If this is the sort of surrounding cultural sort of context, then we should be looking for things that might be new or different inside the culture being created for the people called according to Christ. That what might be new or different or startling as it relates to the larger sort of cultural context. Secondly, I think when we look at texts, we have to consider every text's context. Um, so I had a seminary professor said, uh, every text without a context is just a pretext to say whatever you want. Um, so we have to in some way wrestle with the fact that these verses are set within other verses in an immediate context. Those verses are set within books. Those books are set within a canon. Uh, so we have to kind of wrestle with the overall sort of perspective of Scripture and not just sort of isolate ourselves to one particular verse, but think about the way that those things all fit together. And then lastly, I think we have to carefully distinguish in those situations if what's being talked about is situational or if it's universal. Is what's being talked about a situational sort of thing that's being written or is it a universal thing that's being written? For example, most of Paul's letters are written to specific churches in specific cities at specific times to specific people who are dealing with specific issues. And oftentimes inside of those letters, he's talking about things that are true for all of God's people everywhere all the time. But but there's other times that he's saying, okay, here's what's going on in this church, and let me tell you what I think you should do about that right here and now. Uh, And so that can be difficult for us to kind of parse out and figure out what's happening. So those are the things that I'm kind of keeping in mind as we go through and wrestle with them. But I want to stop real quickly and see if there's any questions about my first two slides before we go any further. And I'll just kind of stop periodically when I need a drink of water to ask questions. (laughs) Anybody? We good so far? All right. So I'm going to work my way through this morning, starting with Jesus and the Gospels, then talking about Acts, then talking about Paul's letters, and then we're going to end with the texts that are the, the most troublesome, kind of in the midst of this. Where, where are the texts that cause the most debate? Um, and so we're going to start there and kind of work our way through uh, as we go along, just so you know kind of the order. All right, so if you look at Jesus and the Gospels, I think when we look at Jesus and the Gospels, we find some really startling things. First of all, we find right away, we start in Matthew chapter 1. We open the New Testament, we find Matthew, and Matthew starts us off with everybody's favorite passage, a genealogy. I mean, what could be a more like, startling way to capture your attention than starting with a genealogy? Interestingly, like genealogies in the ancient world, for the most part, we find particularly in Jewish contexts that genealogies are patrilineal. In other words, you trace your ancestry through the males, Right? And it's very, 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 very uncommon to find women ever listed in a genealogy. And when we look at Jesus' genealogy, several women are listed. There are several women listed. And I think Matthew's doing two things with this. First of all, uh, the fact that he's 
recognizing and including women in the genealogy is a hint to us about the kinds of things that we're going to see in Jesus's ministry, which is the inclusion of women. Secondly, the women that he chooses to include, despite all of the sort of popular beliefs that these are like really bad sinners who get included in here to say that, oh, the gospel comes to everyone, even really sinful women. Uh, That is, how many of you have heard that before, that that's why they're included? No, they're all Gentiles. And in fact, the Old Testament commends them for their faith. They're all Gentiles and they're commended. It's the men in the genealogy who are the real scoundrels, right? Like these women are held up in the Old Testament as people who have exemplary faith in Yahweh. And they're included in the story for those, for those reasons. Uh, even in the midst of someone where we find uh, Bathsheba, who isn't named Bathsheba, she's named the wife of Uriah. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, she's generally called the wife of Uriah uh, to highlight the fact of what David did. That David took somebody else's wife and he killed her husband. <laughs> Uh, of highlighting what it is that David has done. And so these women are not scoundrels. David's the scoundrel in that situation. So we find that sort of shock. We see the inclusion of women and the inclusion of Gentiles, which gives us a little bit of hint of where the book's going to end, right? Jesus going to all the world to make disciples of all nations and all peoples. So we get that little hint at the beginning. Now, we do see that as Jesus starts his ministry, that he calls 12 disciples or 12 apostles who are all male, right? So this is often used as a situation of saying, well, Jesus only has male apostles or only has male disciples, and therefore, uh, leadership should be restricted because this is the pattern that Jesus has. Well, they were also all Jewish, and we don't say that only those who have a Jewish ancestry should be given leadership inside of the church, right? So we don't make that sort of comment. And the other thing that we do find as we look a little bit more closely at the text is that, yes, we do find the 12, and yes, they all are Jewish men. We can't deny or ignore that fact. But we do also find that Jesus has other disciples, And among the other disciples, among the other people who are traveling with him and following him, we find Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many other women who are actually helping to fund the entire operation. And they're following Jesus as well. And the interesting thing is, as far as I know, we have no other indication in the ancient world of a Jewish male taking on female disciples. That this is new what Jesus is doing. He's including women in his close circle of followers. This would have been in some ways considered culturally scandalous. But Jesus is including them in with his disciples. We see this in Luke 8, 1 through 3, where we see soon afterwards he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, as well as some women who'd been cured of evil uh, spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Husa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. So we find this inclusion. Now, if that weren't enough um, to just sort of like push this out there, we do see a very significant thing happen in the story of Mary and Martha. 
Now, when we hear the story of Mary and Martha, we're oftentimes sort of like, oh, see, Mary chose the better thing. She chose intimacy and devotion to Jesus, and Martha was just all busy, you know, being a busybody, and uh, she should have known kind of the better thing to do. Um, she should have just like left her work behind and gone and been with Jesus. What interestingly, though, is that we actually find the description within this passage in Luke 10 that Mary sat at the Lord's feet. It's a, it's a phrase that doesn't get used all of that often uh, in the New Testament. When it does get to use, it gets used to describe things like Paul's relationship with the rabbi Gamaliel in Acts uh, chapter 22, verse 3. That Mary has crossed over in the context of the home from the women's part of the house to the male's part of the house and has taken a seat at Jesus' feet in the same way a disciple would take a, feet, uh, uh, take a seat at Jesus' feet. And to become a disciple of a teacher like Jesus is for the sake of learning what they have to offer, learning to be with them, to learn to live like them, so you can also teach others the same thing. This is what Paul does with Gamaliel. And we find that that's actually one of the really core things that's happening in the text, is that one of the things that Martha is probably upset about is not simply the fact that Mary is not helping with the chores, but that Mary has actually crossed these boundaries and is taking the position of a disciple of Jesus. So we find all again this inclusion that is happening inside of Jesus's ministry. If we keep going on and looking at what happens as the text unfold, we find that Jesus' feet are at one point anointed by a woman. Anointing is a priestly act. It's a woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. This is an act that a priest does. Jesus describes it as an anointing. He rebukes the males around him who didn't do the same thing, and he receives her priestly act. He allows her to act as a priest would toward him. This is Jesus receiving the ministry of a woman in this particular context. Again, there's all sorts of things we find in the passage that's causing tensions for people. But one of the things that's causing tension is the fact that Jesus is identifying her act as priestly and receiving it. We keep moving on, and we see that, of course, we get to the end of the Gospels, uh, that as Jesus is crucified, where it happens to the 12 male Jewish disciples? They're gone, right? They scatter, they run away, they're afraid, right? And so we find that with the exception of the beloved disciple, it's Jesus' female disciples who are there at the cross with him. It's Jesus' female disciples who are the first to the tomb, it's Jesus' female disciples who are the first to see the risen Jesus. And it's Jesus' female disciples who are the first to proclaim that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, in the ancient world, or I shouldn't say the ancient world, in the early church context, the initial sort of use of the word apostle, the initial use of the word apostle was someone who had seen the risen Jesus and proclaimed the resurrection. How are these women operating in the Gospels, they're operating as apostles to the apostles. They have seen the risen Jesus, and they are commissioned by Jesus to go and proclaim 
to the male disciples in hiding that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, if you're putting together the Gospels and you're wanting to prove the validity of the resurrection within the ancient world, okay, you would not have put women as the first sort of reporters of this. In the ancient world, in general, women were not considered to be authoritative enough to be able to give testimony to something. Right? Their, their testimony would have been seen in doubt. And if the gospel writers are very clear to say, no, it was women who first saw Jesus and women who first proclaimed the resurrection. And by the way, they had to go and tell these other 12 guys. And very, very clearly and intentionally showing this, that this is the kind of movement that we see already happening in Jesus and the Gospels. Okay, I'm going to stop again, take another drink of water, see if there's any questions about some of those things from Jesus and the Gospels that we see. We're doing okay so far? Okay. All right, let's go into the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, we come to a place where Jesus has um, sent his uh, disciples back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They're all gathered there, both men and women gathered together. And in Acts chapter 2, there becomes the Holy Spirit comes, falls on them like flames of uh, fire. They're being speaking in other tongues. There's all of this commotion. People are like, hey, what's going on? Peter stands up and gives sort of the first you know, sermon that we encounter in the book of Acts. Uh, all of these people come to Jesus. In the middle of the sermon, he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And in the midst of this, if we take a look at that passage, he says that I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh. And includes very specifically in there that your sons and your daughters will prophesy and that even upon your slaves, both male and female, both men and women, and they will prophesy. So we see that as Peter begins to stand up and say, what is it that God is doing in and through Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit? So he's fulfilling this prophecy from Joel. And this prophecy from Joel says that the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, does not pay attention to gender. That it's both men and women, sons and daughters, and in that case, both slave and free, who the Spirit comes upon and they prophesy. means they speak publicly on the proclamation of the gospel and other things that are going on by the Spirit. So we see that already happening. By the time then we get to Acts chapter 8, we see Acts chapter 8 verse 3. We're talking about Saul before he becomes Paul. It says, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house and dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. Why would he be dragging off women in the early house church movement if they didn't have influence, if they didn't have some sort of leadership in that capacity? You could easily, as we see oftentimes in places, that when we see systematic sort of persecution of churches, that generally this starts with the leaders, right? Take out the leaders. And he's taken out both men and women, likely because they have leadership roles inside of the church. And we find this as Acts goes on, that we see when we get to Acts chapter 16, um, that there's a mention of Lydia, and her entire household coming to Christ. 
She is the head of a household. They're coming to Christ, and she becomes a patron, someone who offers hospitality to uh, those who are going around and proclaiming. So we see Lydia taking on this kind of role. But even more importantly, when we go down, we see in Acts chapter 18, we find the mention of a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They're also mentioned in Romans chapter 16, a passage we're going to talk about in a little bit. And Priscilla and Aquila, they're in this town, and Apollos comes by, the famous sort of missionary Apollos, and they take Apollos aside, and they begin to correct him (laughs) and begin to explain to him a little bit in the clearer and better terms about the way. Here, this prominent church leader in Priscilla and Aquila doesn't just say Aquila, it says both of them. And if Paul is following normal convention, normal convention in the ancient world is that you'd list the more prominent person of a couple first. Why does he mention Priscilla first and not Aquila? Both times. In Acts, she's mentioned first, and in Romans 16, she's mentioned first. Likely because maybe she had the more prominent leadership role amongst the married couple. Now, that's debatable, but it is a, a, a very possible reading. And so there, she's teaching in this context. And then we find this mention in Acts 21 of Philip's daughters being given the gift of prophecy. If we think about prophecy in the early church, we see that Paul, when he's talking about it, ranks gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets. Right? These are the top two sort of tiers for him in terms of gifting and leadership, apostles and prophets. And we find this again both in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts 21 being associated with women. And prophecy is a public ministry sort of place. There is speaking involved with prophecy. And so we find those kinds of texts there in the book of Acts. All right, questions about the book of Acts? Are you good so far still? All right, we're going to go on to some of Paul's letters, specifically Paul's letters to the Romans. And it's fascinating um, when we look at um, Romans 16 in particular, so the very end of the book of Romans. It's that part of Romans, kind of like Matthew chapter 1, where people stop reading after 15 because Paul just starts mentioning people. And it's like, oh, I don't really want to keep reading, so I'm going to skip on to the next letter. Uh, And we miss then a really profound thing that's happening in the midst of Romans chapter 16. So Romans chapter 16, verse 1, begins and says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Uh, That word deacon there, Paul most often uses it for people who minister God's word in some way. That's the most common usage for him. He refers to himself that way. There's a bunch of other passages there, but it is either one of two things. It is either an official leadership position uh, in terms of a title like we would think of like pastor, or it is simply saying she's ministering God's word, or most likely it's a combination of both of them. She is taking a leadership position in the church that involves the ministry of God's word. Now, we continue on and we think about the way that uh, Romans is structured and the way that Phoebe is mentioned first here. It is very likely that Phoebe was probably Paul's courier. Phoebe is probably the person who delivered the letter to the church in Rome. 
if she delivered the letter to the church in Rome, she would have also been the one to read the letter to the church in Rome. And she would have also been the one that Paul entrusted to answer any questions that they might have upon the reading on his behalf. This is most likely who the courier is. I commend to you Phoebe, the very first person listed, most likely the courier of the letter, who would have publicly read the letter aloud to the church and authoritatively answered questions about the letter on Paul's behalf. All right? We go on, and Paul also in this passage uh, recognized two apostles. He mentions Andronicus and Junia. And Junia is a woman. There have been all sorts of like fanciful kind of things done in church history to try to deny the fact that she's a woman. But the vast majority of scholarship that is able to kind of look beyond that, we didn't even see that become a debate until the 1920s, really. Um, she is a woman throughout church history. And then in the 1920s, it's like, uh, I'm not so sure about this. Like, this feels a little bit like there's probably some other explanation and we begin to see changes starting to happen. That Junia, a woman, is listed as an apostle. Again, meaning that she saw the risen Jesus and proclaims the resurrection and has that kind of authority of leadership within the context of the church. If we keep looking on through Romans chapter 16, we do see that in the context of 16, Roman, uh, Paul greets about twice as many men as he does women, but he commends the ministry of twice as many women as he does men. So as he's going through this letter, he's continually commending the ministry of women inside of the church. I don't think this is accidental. We think about the whole sort of buildup of Romans and some of the things that he's saying within that context, and then he's going and he's commending these women for their leadership in the church. This is the world that kind of Paul is writing in. If we think about some of Paul's other letters, we see that in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, he mentions two women as co-workers in the gospel. And we find in 1 Corinthians 11, him giving instructions for when women pray or prophesy in the church, this is what should take place. Now granted, we're going to take a look at that passage because it's a little bit complicated and contentious, but the fact is he's saying when a woman prays or when a woman prophesies in the church, this is what should happen. So again, commending them in ministry publicly in the gathered body of the church together. So we see all of this kind of in Paul's letters um, coming into some of these other passages. All right, I'm going to stop again, see any questions that we have kind of on some of these passages in Paul. Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. So the question was, it seems like if we, if we take these texts seriously, it seems like something new is, new is afoot in the early church. Uh, and yet at some point when we look at church history, something changes. Um, there's several books out there that would make the argument, and I would agree with them, that if we look at the first three centuries of the church, this is what we see. And we start to see a difference after Constantine. So after uh, Christianity becomes the official, I mean, it sort of first becomes an, an authorized religion in the Roman Empire, and then eventually becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as the church becomes more Romanized, they begin to adopt more of the Roman patriarchal system. 
uh, that we begin to see significant changes happening in the third and fourth century. Uh, and that begins to kind of set a new trajectory, uh, which is really interesting in sort of the overall debates that happen. Um, because, you know, oftentimes the, the charge would be that um, for those who are advocating for women in ministry, that this is a, a modern sort of feminist or liberal sort of agenda coming into the church. And I, and I would say, no, I think it's a gospel and early church agenda. Um, and so really we're not trying to do something new. We're trying to, to recover uh, what had been lost in that transition. Uh, but that seems to be the most likely sort of place that that begins is within the sort of, and the church starts to become very hierarchical at that point, uh, much more structured, much more organized. You know, you, you now have this sort of massive amount of people who are suddenly converted. Um, and so, and all of the resources and strength and power of the Roman Empire are connected to the church. And so you begin to see all of these changes happening kind of around in that time. Great question. Anybody else? Before we get into the really fun passages, <laughs> like head, co- head coverings and things that everybody just loves to read. All right, we go okay so far? All right, so let's take a look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, so this is obviously one of the contentious sort of passages. What do we do with this? Um, so we're going to read it to start with so we know kind of all what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. It says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. Uh, For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but the woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Verse 10, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, which is just a weird kind of reckoning. Like, we don't know what to do with that reference. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is, a woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with, uh, to God with her head unveiled. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? Which is, it's surprising me. This doesn't come into the conversations ever, right? We'll leave that aside. But if a woman <laughs> has long hair, it is her glory. Or is it, uh, but, but if a woman has long hair, uh, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering, But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor did the churches of God. All right, so what do we do with this? Uh, So a couple of things. I think, first of all, we can't miss the fact that Paul, again, ranks prophesying ahead of teaching when he's talking about gifts to the church. We cannot miss the fact that Paul addresses both men and women here, okay? Okay. 
So we're talking about prophesying, which he considers to be something high in sort of the general sort of gathering of the church. He's saying that is something that women can do publicly, both prophesy and pray, which would have been pretty incredible inside of that context. He doesn't just address women here. He addresses both men and women, though we want to just make it one side of the equation. Um, We can't ignore the fact that he's talking about hair lengths and hairstyles and all of those kinds of things, head coverings, uh, which are all things about dress codes and hairstyles, right? So those things are part of the conversation that he's having here. That's actually primarily what the passage is about. The passage is primarily about contention. Did you notice what he said at the very end? It's not our custom to be contentious. So we have contentious, contention happening inside of the church as it relates to dress code and hairstyles. Now, within the larger context of what he's writing in, for a married woman to be walking around without a head covering was considered promiscuous. In fact, there's evidence that suggests that when women do not have their head covered, it is an indication that they may be a prostitute within the larger sort of context of the city in which Paul is writing to. So you've got all of this other stuff kind of happening around the way. But we have to recognize that when we're talking about hairstyles and dress, these are culturally conditioned kind of ideas. Like we would probably say, if let's say for example, that there was a young person, let's just say fresh out of seminary, Um, who was coming to preach at New Life downtown and showed up in a bathing suit. Would that go over well? No, like there's some, like that's not appropriate for this place in time, right? There are, but if that person were showing up to preach on the beach at a church plant in California where everybody else was in bathing suits, they were all going surfing afterwards, it may feel different to them than it would to us. There are some of those things that are culturally conditioned. Again, we cannot deny the fact that we're writing in a patriarchal context, in an ancient context, and these things are part of their life and their world together. But we, what seems to be happening is that within the context of this gathered community in Corinth is that both men and women are exercising freedom from social conventions that typically differentiated their gender. This idea of head coverings and long hair and short hair, all of these things are social conventions that typically differentiated gender as well as roles in society, whether or not somebody was married or unmarried, whether they were a prostitute, not a prostitute, all of those kinds of things. And I think for Paul, one of the underlying kinds of things that goes on for him is that Paul's frequently going to ground his arguments as he does here and elsewhere in creation, right? In talking about Adam and Eve a lot in these kinds of passages. Um, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind for Paul is that for Paul, male and female are created in the image of God and created good. That gender is something that is part of God's created order and God's created design, And so things that would sort of press against that and in some way maybe suggest that uh, those things are bad or that those things don't matter, Paul kind of has 
a reaction to. And part of that is the sort of cultural milieu of his day also includes a lot of Gnosticism, a denial of physicality, a denial of materiality, of saying that our bodies are all bad, bodies are all evil, and what really matters is something spiritual. It says, no, God created the world, and he created both male and female, and maleness and femaleness matter in the midst of things. So this is kind of part of Paul's perspective coming in, uh, is recognizing that God is the God of creation, and he created the world good. So he has this tendency to then say, we want to continue to, in a cultural sort of context, continue to promote the things that we consider maleness and femaleness good. Um, So we have that kind of aspect going on within this passage. The other thing that we have going on in this passage, let me just make a quick note about that. Uh, this is oftentimes when we, when we think of the word head uh, in the New Testament, we think about it in two sort of primary ways. Either A, head, right? Like she should have hair on her head, so like a physical head. Or we think it metaphorically. And metaphorically, when we think about it, we think about it in terms of hierarchy, right? Uh, headship kind of language, when we look at the word as it's used in Greek at that time, it very, 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 very rarely has anything to do with hierarchy. It has to do with source, like the head of a, water, of a river. It has to do with kind of how things go. And so notice what Paul's talking about is that the head of everything is God, right? And God creates Adam, the source of Adam was gone. He's grounding this in the Genesis narrative and story. And then from Adam's side, God created female, right? Created Eve. But then where does the next man come from? From Eve. So that's where he's coming to at the end of this passage uh, when he says, for just as woman came from man... So man also comes from woman. There is an interdependence here. Like he's continuing to con- the, the Genesis story, but recognizing that from all things, uh, all things come from God. So that's a little bit of his language I think we get mixed up on. So we come and we, we find passages then like this, where it says a wife ought to have, and I should say that the passage here also is speaking about wives, not women in general. But if we look at the overall passage, he's specifically talking about wives. So we have this sort of situation where there's some contention about wives kind of casting off these, contention, these social conventions, probably due to the freedom that they found in Christ and the contention that is created. Uh, maybe probably in the church and possibly even in their marriages, that because of these social conventions and those kinds of things. And so in the text, we see like a woman should have a symbol of authority overhead is the way that most English translations translate it. The Greek text literally reads, because of this, the wife ought to have authority over her head, meaning her physical head. The language actually suggests that she has the, she has the power to decide whether or not she covers her hair. But Paul advises her to cover it so that she doesn't shame her husband within the larger cultural sort of context. Like, look at that guy who allows his wife to do this for people who do not understand the message of Christ. 
on that sort of missional component. In their culture, like again, I said, a married woman who uncovered her hair was considered promiscuous. And that's still true in many Eastern cultures today. And so it could bring a shame on her husband and cause this question of why doesn't he divorce her? She's clearly not faithful to him in creating that kind of contention. Uh, but then he goes on and says, why? Because in the Lord, neither a husband or a wife should consider himself or herself apart from the other. Uh, they are interdependent on one another as evidenced in creation. The first woman came from a man, but the second man came from a woman and both ultimately come from God. Therefore, neither a husband or a wife should exercise their authority without consideration for their interdependence on one another and their ultimate dependence upon God, who is the source of all things. So neither a husband or a wife, notice he's talking about husbands too, like that they shouldn't cover their heads. Therefore, neither a husband or wife should exercise their authority without consideration of their interdependence on one another and their ultimate dependence on God, who is the source of all things. So we have that is the passage in which he's dealing with here, saying, hey, when we go about the ministry of the church, when women pray, when women prophesy, when men do, and particularly here when husbands and wives do, they should do so in such a way that recognizes their interdependence upon one another and both of their dependence upon God. So that worship is actually something that is not contentious and distracting. Not denying their freedom from being able to do this, but saying, hey, we need to go about doing this in such a way that leads to the building up of the body and not to the tearing down of the body. This is the kind of things that Paul has uh, in mind. So that's where the, the source language comes in there. All right. Any questions on that passage in 1 Corinthians before we get into the really, really sticky passages? No? Yeah. yeah so the comment was whether or not there's that healthy kind of conversation about interdependence between husband and wife kind of in the general teaching of the church. And I would say, you know, from, again, these highly debated passages, right, and di- room for differences of opinion. Uh, but when I look at something like Ephesians and the household codes there, um, we oftentimes read them in a hierarchical sort of way, right? Um, that wives submit to your husbands, and, you know, we have that sort of hierarchical sort of passage. But interesting, the passage begins with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the word submit actually doesn't even appear in the next verse. You can't get wives submit to your husband without reading submit to one another in love. That's where the verb is. It's carried over into the next thing. So it's mutual submission, which is being talked about there, which would have been new in the ancient world. It's the same way where Paul says at one point, uh, wives are, uh, a wife's body belongs to her husband. But he also says a husband's body belongs to his wife. That second part, about a husband's body belonging to his wife, absolutely revolutionary in that world. Wives were expected in an ancient sort of patriarchal sort of culture to only do with their bodies what husbands said they could do. But husbands could do whatever they wanted. So husbands could be promiscuous and do kind of whatever they wanted with their bodies, and wives were restricted. And if they, didn't, if they weren't restricted, they were, then they could be easily be divorced. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm not having any of that. Like, both of your bodies belong to one another. And so there's all of that kind of teaching that Paul is continuing to do, I think, through there that kind of moves toward this interdependence and mutuality, mutual submission, so that this is actually what worship of God looks like 
uh, in that context. Yeah, help me with your name. I think that they're probably exercising their freedom in Christ, of saying that because of what God has done in and through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the old rules no longer matter. And so they're exercising that freedom uh, in the midst of that, that they find themselves more free and more empowered in the context of the church than in any other place in society. And therefore, they're kind of acting in that way, right? But Paul frequently will do this where he'll, he'll tell us to restrict our freedoms uh, for the sake of other people, right? Um, he's frequently doing this and saying, hey, yes, you're free in Christ, but don't go to the point of making it all about your freedom at the expense of other people, at the expense of the overall gathering that uh, though everything may be permissible, not everything is beneficial. And so he's kind of coming in that same sense of uh, not trying to deny that freedom, right? You can pray and prophesy in the context of this gathering, but saying, let's be careful to be aware of how this, uh, your hairstyle and your dress impact your relationship with your husband, the view of your husband, and the view of you in the context of the gathering and in the context of the larger community. Uh, So there is Paul continuing to say that we give up personal freedoms or we limit personal freedoms for the sake of others, Uh, frequently kind of going to that sense in his passages. Uh, Great question. Yeah, Maggie. The major issue in Corinthians is divisions. Um, So we see massive divisions happening inside of this church. Um, And those divisions we're going to see in one of the next passages relating to all sorts of disruptions and disorder into the context of worship. Uh, So we see, for example, in Corinthians, divisions between the rich and the poor. Um, So the rich are able to come to the service early. um, And they come to the service early and the service is a feast, right? And so they are eating and drinking um, and to the point of getting drunk before the poor are able to come because they're still at work, right? And he says, no, 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 stop that because you're eating your own meal now rather than the Lord's meal. So we have all of these divisions and fractions that are happening inside the church, all this contention. And Paul is trying to take this divided community and bring them back together. So he's addressing all of these situational things that are happening. Woman taking off her head covering or a man covering his, the rich getting drunk on the communion wine, you know, before everybody else shows up, all of those kind of things so that they have plenty and the poor have none. He's addressing all of those kind of things in the context. All right, any other questions? If not, we're going to go on to the real doozies. All right, so here are the two doozy passages. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 36, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. These, in my opinion, if we were to look really closely at the passages, I think they're the only passages that could possibly be used to restrict women in ministry. So after all of those other passages, we have all of that other evidence of women serving as deacons and apostles and being commended for being co-workers and being told they can pray and prophesy in church and the comments about the Spirit coming upon both male and female. After all of that, we have only these two passages. So I think that should at least tell us maybe something else that might be going on in these passages when we think about it in the larger canonical sense. And I think if we look at both passages, both are correcting specific problems in specific churches. 
that they're not making universal sort of proclamations. Uh, so they should not be read, in my opinion, as universal prohibitions, but things that are very specific, especially in light of the other evidence that we have. All right, so the first one, 1 Corinthians 14. Granted, we're in the same letter we were just in, right? We're just three chapters later. And it says this, As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says so. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only ones that is reached? So that's that first passage. Women should be silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak is that command in, or that instruction in 1 Corinthians 14. So interestingly, Paul, just three chapters earlier, gave permission and instructions for how women should pray and prophesy in the public gathering. So three chapters earlier, he's telling them, hey, when you pray and when you prophesy at church, this is what it should look like. And now he's saying women should be silent in church. Wait a minute. Like, what is, is Paul like changing his mind here? What's going on? Like, what is actually sort of happening in the larger sort of context? And I think if we look at the context of 1 Corinthians 14, the context of the whole passage is about order in church worship. Things being done in an orderly way because God is a God of order. And the solution that he proposes in the passage is, is if wives want to know something, they should ask their husbands at home. So the solution he proposes says, hey, if wives want to know something, they should ask their husbands at home. Which suggests for us that the problem that Paul is trying to address is wives asking questions in the middle of the service, asking their husbands questions in a way that's disruptive to the overall flow. That what we have is a situation where wives are confused about something and they're asking a question in a way that is disruptive. So they're not taking the role of praying or prophesying in the normal ordering of the service. He's already given instructions on how to do that. Instead, we have as wives asking disruptive sort of questions in the middle of this. Um, and so... What's interesting kind of in the middle of this is that in ancient and Jewish lecture settings, advanced students or educated students like would frequently interrupt public speakers with reasonable sort of questions. And yet we're now looking at a situation where we have a culture that deprived most women of education, right? This is systematic deprivation of education for women in the ancient world with few exceptions. That's the reality of the ancient world. Jewish women could listen in synagogues, but unlike boys, they were not taught to recite the law while growing up. Uh, ancient culture also considered it rude uh, for uneducated persons to slow down lectures with their questions that showed that they were novices. That it was advanced students, educated students that could interrupt, but not new students. And so what actually Paul says is something kind of profoundly new. He says educated husbands should honor their wives' questions and their intellectual capacity. He says their questions matter. They have a right to the information. They have a right to know. And husbands who do know, who have been educated, who might know this sort of formal language or formal rhetoric or things that are being used, should catch their wives up who've been deprived of education. 
the idea here seems to be so that when they have caught up, they participate in the service just like everybody else. So he's not sort of making this sort of like universal prohibition, but he's sort of making a short-term solution with a long-term goal. Um, So he's saying husbands should take a personal interest in their wives' learning, catch them up in a way that doesn't sort of violate the order of the service, but that it's pretty drastic in the ancient world where most husbands would have doubted their wives' intellectual capacity and would have thought that they have no business asking these questions or knowing this information. This is a man's thing. And Paul doesn't say that. He says, no, this is what should happen so that we can continue on with the order of the service on it. So Paul here is actually far more progressive um, than other ancient writers and seems to be that he's trying to address this specific issue. And we would probably say too, if, if someone were standing up in the middle of our services and saying, hey, Pastor Glenn, I didn't understand that word that you just said. Like, we'd probably think that was a little bit odd and disruptive. We'd probably say, hey, like, why don't you ask somebody else that question, right? Ask the person next to you, ask afterwards, because it's disrupting the order and flow of the service. That's the context here. It's not saying that all women, all wives should always be silent in church, but specifically addressing that particular issue um, within the context of Corinthians. And I think especially when we see 1 Corinthians 11, there has to be more going on here um, to be able to hold these two together. And I think that makes the most sense given the passage. All right, any questions on that one? Yeah, what's your name again? And so in that case too, it would have been you know, not like a large lecture hall, you know, where someone's asking somebody in the back. It would have been probably a small home gathering. So any sort of uh, questions would have been distracting for other folks. Some have argued, I'm not sure this really holds up, um, I'm still wrestling with it, but some have suggested that in the early home settings that they may have um, modeled the home settings after the synagogue setting, in which the synagogue setting men and women would have been separated and sitting on opposite sides of the room. So it would have been like kind of talking across the room at somebody. Uh, I'm just not sure that the home gatherings brought in that synagogue structure. Some people have made that argument I think it's probably more, it's a small gathering and side conversations, as we all know, in small gatherings are highly disruptive. They're distracting. And so that's, I think, probably the the simpler explanation than sort of a mirroring of the synagogue. Yeah, it implies it's a problem, at least at Corinth. Um, So we we don't see him really addressing this in some of his other letters, but at least at Corinth, it's, a, it's a, a prevalent of enough problem that it's causing, you know, repeated sort of disruption in the order of the service. Yeah. Yeah. Help me with your name again. Sorry, I forgot to ask earlier. Lindy. Yeah. That, that, is, a, that is another possibility. So the suggestion was that she's heard the, uh, Lindy had heard the interpretation uh, that this may be Paul referencing something else actually maybe even quoting the first Corinthians or quoting the Corinthians back to him uh, or quoting the Corinthians back to themselves and then going and refuting it um, from there. And that's one of the challenges of the Corinthian correspondence in particular is that we have these two letters. Um, we don't have the letters that the Corinthians are writing. And so there's oftentimes scholars trying to figure out where is it that Paul is simply referring back to 
something that they wrote or something that they taught in order to refute it? Uh, and where is it that this is, this is Paul's words rather than Paul saying, hey, this is, you know, almost like Jesus saying, you heard it said, now I say to you, like, I heard you say this, but now I'm going to come back. And that, I think, is another possibility, of which case would, I think, both go to promoting the same idea um, that Paul is saying that women can have public ministry roles in the context of the church. Uh, and that should be done within the order and flow of the overall service. So I think that it's another possibility. I think the more I look at it, I think this is the most likely one. Um, but that's certainly a possibility as well within this particular passage. Great question, Lindy. Any other questions on that one? All right, then we're going to go on to Timothy. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. It says this, it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing. Now, excuse me, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who, pre- who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith uh, and love and holiness with modesty. Uh, So again, this is the second passage, other than the 1 Corinthians 14 one, where we see uh, the possibility of a restriction of women in public ministry roles with the comment, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. All right, so a couple things to kind of look at, first of all, in the passage. First of all, Paul is contending, still in this passage, for a woman to study and learn in silence and full submission. Now, oftentimes we read this passage, it means, oh, in silence and full submission to, like, her husband. That, that doesn't say that. Paul just says, I permit women, contend for women to study and learn in silence with full submission. The language of silence and full submission actually would have been thought for any beginning learner, for any new disciple, for any person coming new into the church. That there should be a recognition that when somebody is a brand new convert to, a, to Christianity, that there is a learning that should happen first. And that learning should happen in silence, thinking about, reflecting on, receiving what is being taught, and in submission to that, learning how to live according to what is being taught. So it'd be true for everybody, not just women. And so Paul's contending again still for the education of women in this context. Now, the larger context of the passage, I think, is really interesting because he's writing to Timothy, who happens to be in Ephesus. Now, if you know anything about Ephesus... Ephesus is the epicenter for the worship of Artemis or Diana. The temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, is headquartered, is right there in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis is a female cult, a female-only cult, a female-only religion that is led by female priestesses. Like this is the most important thing happening in Ephesus and unlike most of the rest of the ancient world, it is highly 
sort of uh, promoting women in leadership and all of those kinds of things. I mean, we find, but all connected to the worship of Artemis. Um, So what we likely have happening here, I think in the larger context, is that Paul is thinking about female converts who are new to the church, who are likely deeply influenced by Artemis and probably assumed that they can immediately assume leadership roles in the church. After all, they, can, they had leadership roles or could be given leadership roles in the temple of Artemis. Why can they not, if, especially if they're coming from one to the other, which would have been most likely any convert would have been coming, Gentile convert would have been coming from Artemis worship into Jesus worship. Why are those things that were true here not also true here? That this is probably the context of what's being written into And so what he says to them is he says to women, don't dress in ways that show piety to Artemis. The language that he's using there is probably specifically referring to hairstyles that women would use in Artemis worship of a way of showing and demonstrating and reflecting Artemis into the world. And says, he says, dress modestly and do good works because this is how you show fidelity to Yahweh. This is how you show worship to Jesus. You are no longer continuing to sort of perpetuate this hairstyle and this style of dress that shows fidelity to Artemis, but you now are moving into a new place, a new way of life, a new way of living, and so you leave the old behind and coming in to show fidelity to God. And then it's likely also, he says, furthermore, don't perpetuate Artemis's story Instead, learn God's story. In the Artemis cult, Artemis is considered the mother of all life. That there are some versions of it that talk about how women were formed first and that man was the one who sinned. So rather than Yahweh being the creator of all things, and rather than Adam being formed first, and rather than Eve committing the first sin as we see in Genesis, and there's all sorts of things we can say about that passage, it's almost the reverse right? Artemis is the mother of all life, that woman was formed first, and that man sinned. And so likely he's saying, I don't teach, I don't permit any woman to teach this myth, to teach the story of Artemis, to teach the religion of Artemis inside the context of the church. That's not going to happen. So learn the new way of Jesus, learn to live in light of the way of Jesus, And so he's probably saying, I do not right now, even the Greek verb there probably is not, it's best read not as a universal prohibition, but as like, I do not presently permit in Ephesus. I do not presently permit women to teach in this capacity um, because there's this converts coming in and he's wanting to show them the church isn't organized and led like Artemis' cult that you are learning a new way of life. And really what Paul has ended up promoting as we look at all of his letters is not either all male-led or all female-led, as in Artemis, but a both and. But everything, again, in proper timing, in proper order, and making sure that those who are coming into the church are being discipled in the way of Jesus before they take leadership in the church of Jesus. That's most likely what's happening. And I think one of the ways to kind of contend for this also is this sort of strange comment about being saved through childbirth. 
um, that one of the things that was part of the Artemis myth as well is that Artemis is the one who will protect women when giving birth to children. In the ancient world, the leading cause of death among women was giving birth. This is the leading cause of death. And so there likely would have been sort of deep fear for women who grew up in Ephesus. But what happens if I stop showing my allegiance to Artemis? Am I going to die in childbirth? And what Paul is coming back is saying, no, God will protect you during that time. So he's not talking about that you're going to have eternal salvation because you had kids. That's not what the passage is teaching. The passage is sort of systematically addressing things related to Artemis and saying those things aren't true here. And if you're worried about it, which you most likely are, Yahweh, the Father of Jesus, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, can protect you in childbirth more than Artemis can. That he will rescue you, carry you through that childbirth, which has been a huge fear and worry amongst women in the ancient world. I think when we think about those words, the phrases that are being used, the fact that they're deeply connected to Artemis, that we're writing in Ephesus, I think that's the best way of understanding this particular passage. Again, in light of all of the other things where Paul is clearly promoting and supporting and championing and commending women in ministry in all of these other churches and spaces. So, those two passages, that's, I think, the best way to kind of take a look at them uh, in the middle of it. But that's all I have, just kind of walking through those uh, today. We're almost out of time. We have about five, ten minutes or so uh, for additional questions and answers um, as we try the best we can in a short amount of time to kind of deal with some difficult and debatable texts. Any thoughts, comments, questions? This is always the part where I get nervous. <laughs> yes, Cecilia. Ooh, the, so the question was, are there child sacrifices associated with Artemis? I don't know. I haven't read enough kind of specifically to know if there were specifically child sacrifices related with her worship or not. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, so the quite great question. The question was, is for those who read the text differently than I do, um, for those who would say that these texts sort of clearly sort of prohibit or restrict women's roles in public ministry within the context of the local church, what's the reason for uh, their argument inside of that? Um, so I, it's, it's probably several fold. It's not going to be the same for everybody. Uh, one of them is uh, a very literal reading of the text. So it just simply says, well, no, Paul says right here, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, and so it's, it's simply because it's clearly said there, um, then therefore that must be um, what Paul is advocating for on a permanent sort of level. And so there is a, a real commitment inside of that to a very sort of plain or literal reading of the text. Um, that is kind of the most predominant thing. The interesting thing is that I think all of the other passages become very difficult um, in the midst of that. You know, what do we do with all of these other women and situations and arguments and the things? Well, those must be exceptions. This is the clearly stated rule, so those must be exceptions. And so there's a little bit of kind of that there. I think secondly, um, 
One of the reasons would be uh, just an aspect of tradition. Um, so for example, if we take our Roman Catholic um, brothers and sisters, uh, we would find, uh, interestingly, like in 1976, I think is one of one, there was this huge sort of gathering of biblical scholars within the Catholic tradition, and they said very clearly that there's nothing that we find in the Old Testament or in the New Testament that restricts women um, from any role of leadership in the Catholic Church. Instead, they had to base their argument on tradition. Um, and so they said that we, we can't base this in the text. We can only base it on tradition. Uh, and they clearly said that, like, it was, I think it was 76. Uh, so they didn't make any changes, but tradition becomes a huge thing for folks. Um, that is one of the things that comes into play. Um, I think one of the other aspects that probably comes in, into play in the midst of that is the cultural sort of wars and tensions and those things of um, the sort of, per, I think, a, a dominant perception that this is somewhat new teaching to the church um, rather than being present in, in Jesus and the Gospels and the, and the text because they're reading literal, uh, those passages in that sense, that this therefore must be a new introduction to the church. We don't have it in our own tradition. Um, whatever those traditions happen to be. Therefore, it must be coming from somewhere outside. And if it's coming from outside, it must be coming from a feminist liberal sort of agenda. And so then therefore, there's sort of a, uh, almost a, a, a bulwark that's put up. Like we have to like hold on to this because we're being attacked from the outside. In the middle. So I, I think that contributes in the middle of things. And I'm, and I'm trying to be, I hope that's fair for, Anybody who's listening or maybe anybody who's here who feels differently about those things, I apologize if that's not a fair perspective um, for those who are in those traditions. So I know people in those traditions who I vehemently disagree with and love them and they love Jesus. Um, we just have difference of opinions. And I would say that's my perspective on their difference of opinion. They, they may say it differently than I would. I, I want to recognize that. Yeah, Larissa. Interesting. Yeah, so the, the comment was, I was going to say it for the podcast, Larissa had heard that kind of we see patterns in church history where uh, that in kind of fresh moves or new moves or uh, kind of interesting kind of movements within the, the spirit, that women are oftentimes kind of very much included in leading in those early movements. But as that movement becomes more institutionalized or a little bit older, then oftentimes then we begin to see kind of these other structures coming in and women being kind of moved out of that, those kind of roles. I don't know. I've never, I've never seen the research. I'd be fascinated to see it because um, I think if you look at some things in church history, um, like for example, uh, especially a lot of the um, kind of post-enlightenment modern like missions movement, uh, a lot of the modern missions movement was very much drastically led uh, by women who were going overseas and proclaiming the gospel and sacrificing themselves in ways. Uh, and yet oftentimes their stories aren't told as much as some of, uh, some of the other modern, modern missionaries in the middle of those things. So I'd be, if you find some of the research, I'd be fascinated to read it. Anybody else? Yes. Great, great question. So I was asking about some uh, sort of additional sort of texts and uh, those things. Uh, there's several. How about... Um, how about I list some of them on the PowerPoint? I'll, I'll include another slide uh, and put some resources on there. And I'll try to put kind of a variety of them. Some of them that might be like quick, good review of some of this. And others that might be 
kind of like beginner, intermediate, advanced kind of level uh, sort of thing so that I don't miss any of them uh, in the middle. I'm going to put a note here. We're going to add a slide. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, Cecilia. The interesting thing is that like, Paul continually comes back and grounds all of this in Genesis. And I think, the, I, I deeply believe that the reason is both, A, he's trying to combat Gnosticism, like at its very early sort of forms, this denial of physicality and materiality that's happening in the context of the early church. And secondly, trying to combat all of these other myths, particularly the Artemis myth. Um, of, of these other creation stories, these other ways of kind of viewing things. And he's coming back and saying, no, 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 no. Like, this is the story in Genesis. And he's continually coming back and grounding everything there. And then, you know, using that as a way of kind of building his argument. Um, but if we, if we don't consider those other two external influences, uh, it's hard to, like, okay, Paul, thanks. Like, I don't know what you're saying and why. Um, Thanks for giving us a Genesis history lesson. <laughs> Any other comments, thoughts? Yeah. So I, I mean, that, that part, like the argument for me is really hard because I don't, I don't think Paul's wrong. I think we've been wrong in the ways we've understood Paul. Um, and that's sort of the place where I would go is saying that I think the scriptures are authoritative, but that doesn't mean that, that all of us like constantly have the best reading, best perspective, best interpretation of all of those things. And so for me, coming from a high view of Scripture, a high view of scriptural authority, but also like saying we have to wrestle with these texts and hold them all together, that I don't think Paul's wrong. Uh, I think we, we've been wrong in understanding him. Um, and I, I get deeply worried when we want to kind of just say, or we're just going to throw Paul out um, rather than trying to wrestle with Paul on his own terms, uh, his own context, his own culture, his own time period, and then do the really hard work of what does that now mean for us here and now in terms of faithfulness. I don't know if that answers the, the, the question well, but uh, I, I personally would just have a, a hard time with just taking and chucking the text. Uh, that's a whole lot of the New Testament that we put in jeopardy if we just, I certainly think Paul's hard to understand. Uh, it even says in another letter that the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, which is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, that another New Testament writer says, yeah, Paul's kind of dense, like, and I have a really hard time trying to figure out what he's saying. Uh, I, I think we need to quote that scripture more often. <laughs> All right, let me close this in prayer. We're going to come back uh, and have a second conversation about this next week. Uh, I'm still kind of praying through exactly which direction to take uh, and who will be leading uh, next week. And then the following week, uh, the third week of this, we're going to do a panel uh, of women who are in ministry in various capacities and kind of talk through their experiences, what they've learned, what they've faced, they dealt with, uh, how they've responded in the midst of those things. Um, so we'll have some intervening week that I'm still kind of praying and discerning through, and then a, a panel uh, a conversation on that third week in the midst of that. So let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that uh, you are the source of all life. And we come back and we continue to submit ourselves to you and ask for your help. 
as we discern how it is that we live out the ramifications of the gospel in our life together. We desperately need you. We need your spirit. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom. And so help us. And in all the places that we've got it wrong, in all the places that we've said and done uh, hurtful things, please forgive us. Help us to forgive one another. And in the places that we disagree, where we have different perspectives, we wrestle in different ways, help us to, to fight for unity, even in the midst of our disagreements. To be able to look one another in the eye and say we are brother and sister in Christ, um, and to find unity in the fact that we all believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth, that he was incarnate, born of a virgin Mary, that he suffered, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, that he sent the Holy Spirit, and one day he's going to come and set everything right again, uh, and then we'll all see really clearly <laughs> and think much better than we do now. And so help us to find ways to be loving and civil in the midst of our dialogues and disagreements. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. I'll stick around here if you have more questions. Is that helpful? All right, cool.